My name is Jonathan Kumar. I'm the project lead and founder of GiveSafe, a new startup downtown Seattle. Hi, my name is Rituja, and this is Roti, Kapra, or Makan, where we talk about the basics of life, food, clothes, and the idea of home. Jonathan moved to Seattle from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Seattle wasn't his initial choice destination. Let's hear how Jonathan decided that Seattle would be his next home. I was living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and in 2014, I felt the year had been one of maybe stagnation where I had stopped growing personally, professionally, very much you are who the five people around you are and I maybe felt like I wasn't being challenged enough. At, at that time as well, I was looking to grow uh, the current startup I was working on called Food Circles. And so we were looking for a secondary market to launch in. I, I did a scouting trip to San Francisco, and for a couple of reasons it wasn't a great fit. So Seattle was next, and we felt it was a, it was a great complement, a secondary option to San Francisco. So I made the move in last year in March, come out here. And do you feel like uh, you found a home in Seattle or do you think it's going to be another uh, hop in in the next destination? Yeah, I'd really like to put roots down if I can. It's not a great time to buy uh, <laughs> <laughs> for one thing, so that makes it difficult, but I would say I think everything I need is here and I would be comfortable putting roots down as I'm, as I'm able to. I haven't found that home base yet. I've had sort of interesting interactions with, with home. Uh, yeah, I think I'd like to be here. Finding a space to live in Seattle is not easy. I asked Jonathan to elaborate on his interesting interactions on finding a home in Seattle. When I landed here, for example, I had two suitcases, didn't have a place to live. A, a friend of mine had moved out of an apartment early and into a new place and that, that apartment she had left had nine days left on a lease. So she let me stay there, unfurnished apartment, didn't even have a microwave for nine days while I tried to find housing. You know, I did the Craigslist thing and I ended up finding a place that was really, really great. Great roommate, he was a stranger. The next, one day I met him, the next day I signed a lease for them for a year. It's crazy, but it worked out really well. Beautiful spot in Capitol Hill. It was affordable. And then our landlord, uh, a couple months ago, decided to double our rent. That was tough. Life is all about change. So about a week before we were out, I found a place to crash for a few months. And then in September, I think I, I have a good place with a group of guys in the U District area. Uh, so I'm excited about that, becoming yeah. home, hopefully. As Jonathan mentioned, He's found home through friends, Craigslist, etc. However, in the past, he's found a place to live in very unconventional ways. I was in a pretty toxic living situation and I had to go and find another one. And I was at the time sick of the whole Craigslist thing and I didn't have any friends that had any rooms open. Uh, so I was in Grand Rapids. I was working again on a startup, which meant I had no money at all. Because I have a background in sales and entrepreneurship, I tried to apply those principles to finding housing. And I thought, all I need to do is find one person who's willing to take me on. I should go to the neighborhood of my choice, set the price that I'm willing to pay, and knock on 10 doors to see if anyone will let me live there for that price. And 
Obviously, it's a ridiculous proposition. More likely than not, I'm going to get laughed off of every porch that, I, that I'm on. Mm -hmm. But if I can somehow find one person to say, yes, that's all that I really need. It's not like I'm going to see those other people again. So we said, let's, let's talk to 10 houses. There's a pretty good chance that all 10 of those are going to be no. But then there's also a decent chance that one out of 10, 10%, one, we could get one yes. So you know, we filmed it and we went for it. We were thinking it was going to be a web series that was going to be fairly comical because it was going to be all these really awkward interactions with people. But it turned out that the first door I knocked on in this beautiful mansion in Grand Rapids ended up being a yes. Wow. So I moved into this mansion for about eight months. Uh, this old lady had this home. Her family was all gone uh, for different reasons. And she was renting out rooms for like $900 a month to lawyers and CEOs and uh, people coming in for PhD programs. I was none of those and I was paying $300 a month, but we, we made it work for about eight months. So you've lived in a lot of homes in different places. Mm. What's your definition of your ideal home? I think it's it's more about... The, the people that I'm with, the sense of warmth that I find when I go homes, and I really mean temperature warm. I, I've lived in situations, you know, where, where the roommates want to keep the heat down and save on the, the utility bills right. and the, that's tough. So I'm, I'm, I just, I, I want it to be a place where, where I'm comfortable to be in my room or in, in, in the common areas. More than that, I, I think that it's a place where I also want to feel comfortable cooking, pr providing food for myself or for other people, a place where it doesn't have to be grand, but a place that I can serve someone else a meal mm -hmm. effectively. So there's that definition, but then there's all that definition of do I feel at home where I am? And that's that's a little bit more challenging because I think that's that's more focused on, you know, who's your community? Do you have a home group of people to be with and live life with? And that's something that... I'm still sorting through. For Jonathan, home is not only a physical space, but also a community. But then defining a community is difficult for Jonathan. Ultimately, it's about finding those people with whom he feels at home with. It's, it's like that concept of tribe, right? Where not everyone's the same, but there's something about the differences or the similarities that causes you guys to click and you naturally are attracted to each other. And because my life has been about so many different communities and so many different places, it's been hard to find that, that group that coalesces. But looking for that tribe where there's five different roles and everyone fits one of those roles and it works really well. There, when you were in that moment where you're in your tribe, I think that really feels like home, even though you could be out in the woods camping or mm -hmm. um, in a different country. Jonathan grew up in majority white neighborhoods, went to schools where he was in the minority, which led to interesting experiences growing up. But college was a different experience altogether because for the first time, he met other South Asians who looked like him. It was interesting because uh, my parents became Christians and so uh, we didn't really participate in, in, in the typical rituals and rhythms of, of being an Indian in, in India or, or the States really. So we didn't have, I didn't have any like Indian friends growing up. We didn't have any sort of Indian culture on Sundays, we went to church. I went to a white school. Yeah, I kind of grew up in that white community. What it was like being second generation Indian in that was tough because everyone knew who you were, but I also felt that there was invisible barriers that I couldn't cross. 
I couldn't, I couldn't be as close to a person, whether it be like a best friend or, or, or like even go on a date or something. There was something that, that separated me from being able to be as close as someone who's of the same color. Yeah, it was, like I said, everyone knew me, I knew everyone, but there was always something I felt that separated me. I was just going to add, yeah. at the University of Michigan, my freshman year, it was it was different in that for the first time in my life, I saw other Indian people who are my age who also grew up in America. And I thought that mm. I had just unlocked this group of best friends for life because wow. they had all been through the same things I had been through. I couldn't have been more wrong. Like my first semester in college, I spent a lot of time in that Indian American community. But then I realized that there was big differences between me and them based on the way we had been brought up. Because all of them had been brought up in, in, in like Indian communities, mm-hmm. particularly because, you know, they, they grew up with the rituals and the cultures. They all had very interesting names that I couldn't pronounce. Right. right. Uh, so that, that was interesting. And, they, and then they, they saw me as very different as well, having a name like Jonathan Titus. Like mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what's, what's that about? So, I mean, it wasn't really because of my name. Just, um, I found that. It was like, who, who did you grow up with? So if you grew mm-hmm. up in a mixed environment where there was Asians and blacks and whites and uh, or, or it was all white, there, that's one group. That's group one. And then group two was uh, Indian Americans who grew up with uh, mostly brown people. And then group three was people who were straight from India. Right. So I found that group one gets along really well with group one. So if I met another Indian guy who grew up in a mixed community or a white community, we got along pretty well. Mm-hmm. Group two gets along pretty well with each other, but they don't get along with group one necessarily. Mm-hmm. And then group three, they obviously get along with each other. Group two tries to put as much distance yeah. <laughs> between them because they've got accents and they look weird yeah. and stuff as they can. And then group one thinks they're hilarious, group three. Mm. And then so there, there's a cultural exchange between group one and group three that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Our conversation went back to how and where Jonathan grew up. So how was your experience like, um, you said you grew up in an all-white neighborhood. Um, was yours like the only brown family? Did your parents make a conscious decision of moving to that neighborhood? And how was mm. it growing up? I think it was a conscious decision. I, I think they had opportunities to be a part of Indian communities when we lived in Wisconsin or Chicago. And I think there was some effort to, or there was a decision there to not really engage mm. in that. I think we, we had some, uh, we, yeah, growing up, it seemed because my parents were, there was no, my, my parents hate Bollywood music, hate mm-hmm. Bollywood movies, so there, I had no exposure to any of that. I also became to not like that. Mm-hmm. And I all and my parents, I feel, were interested in, in putting distance mm-hmm. um, between their culture and focusing more on, on things of the church, mm-hmm. um, which there are churches in India, like you had mentioned. Um, but for me, I think growing up, because they were doing that, I also, and, and because I was having issues, you know, socially, right, mm. that I'd mentioned, trying to cross these barriers, I was trying to push my, my Indian-ness as oh. much away as I can, you know, I would have painted myself white if I could have, and, you know, I think that's something that a lot of ethnic groups would say. For a long time, I, I like I said, pushed, pushed, tried to hide that aspect of me mm. so that people would see me n- neutrally. I think in the last three to four years, uh, I have finally come into a place where 
I appreciate and enjoy India and Indian culture and my heritage for, for what it is. Mm. Uh, I can think of a few things and that, that led to that. Obviously, shooting documentary in India was, was really helpful, being able to travel the country for eight weeks and doing something different than just sitting on your uncle's couch, mm-hmm. you know, and sipping something and catching up. Uh, so that was that was that was pretty important for me. And then I also spent uh, a, 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 a season in my life where I would uh, take a friend to a Sikh temple because he he was mm. Sikh and he didn't have a car. So mm. I would take him to the temple and I didn't I didn't know Punjabi or anything, mm-hmm. but I would I would participate and and that was that was helpful. There's a lot of you know beautiful things that I saw in that. Mm. Um, one of the pivotal moments in Jonathan's life was when he went to India to film a documentary. Going to India and traveling gave him a certain sense of confidence about being an Indian and also feeling comfortable in his skin. In the, in the six trips pre- preceding the film, it had been very much go, you get diarrhea, you sit at your relative's house, you don't have Nintendo, yeah. it's, it's, it's not that fun, it's really yeah. hot. When you landed in India, did you feel like, okay, I'm not standing out or, you know, I'm one of these people. So did you feel like you're part of it? There's actually a new confidence that comes up in me when I hang out with Indian people in general, here or there. Maybe this isn't the right way of saying it, but it's just like, I'm the boss. Like I I have this culture. I am different. I'm head and shoulders above these guys, literally Mm -hmm. and culturally. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I like... There is that pride, that ego, I would say, that mm. comes in. Even I, I noticed it was so I play a lot of football and tackle football. And, and I would notice that, you know, if I'm playing with a group of like white kids, I'm I'm one of the I'm like middle, smaller, one of the smaller ones. So I'm not especially on defense. I'm not looking to like hit someone that hard or mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not that good on defense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then one or two times I played with like an Indian frat and they're also still bigger and taller than me. So same size, but there was just this confidence that I that I could hit and run with anyone. Jonathan grew up in a typical Indian household where mom cooked most of the meals, which also meant that he didn't learn to cook when he was young. You mentioned that you like to cook. <laughs> Yeah. So, did you grow up cooking? Like, who taught you how to no, cook? No, no. That's 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 the problem. Is that I had a mom, like most you know, Indian moms, who prepared twenty one meals a week for me. So, mm-hmm. I never, ever, ever did anything in the kitchen. Everything was provided for me. Wow. And it was great. I came and took it for granted. But I just had such a loving gracious mom who wanted to always make sure that I was well fed, that I had food to go, that my friends had food. The unintended consequence is that I came out very ill-equipped to provide for myself. Mm. So I think I learned how to make scrambled eggs when I was 21. Yeah. Ramen noodles when I was 22, 23. These are very, very basic things. And now, five years, six years later, I think I have, I could probably do some sort of cookbook about like bachelor recipes mm. basic things that taste pretty good that are 10 15 minutes prep things mm. like chicken lo mein or ground pork burritos or really good buffalo wings pork chops 
steamed broccoli. So, so stuff like that. I don't do any Indian food uh-huh. at all. I mean, I eat it. I love right. it. Cause, right. But I get it from my mom. Yeah. Uh, she'll, you know, whenever we meet up, she'll give me a suitcase full of frozen wow. Indian food that I can <laughs> toss in my freezer. She's even mailed it across the country one time. <laughs> so what, what food do you remember from your childhood days that, that you wish you knew how to make? Oh, or, yeah. Or that you just wish she sent it to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, back in back when I was a young kid, we like I said um, before, we we went through a period where we were on food stamps and stuff, and we didn't have a lot. So there was like these spicy potato recipes that that mm-hmm. my mom used to make, and 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 a lot of like veg stuff, spicy potatoes. There's like a there's like a vegetable that I can't remember the name, so I'm not even gonna try. But she she would make a stew of that. That was really good. And then once we started earning more as a family, then it like graduated into like chickens and stuff like that. So there's um, a really good like, semi-dry masala chicken that she makes, like mm. chutinad style. Oh yeah, that's yeah. that's amazing. And another dish she recently, the like, last five years, came out with like onion chicken. That's really good. Mm. Chana masala. Yeah. So did you grow up eating South Indian food in the house though, or mm-hmm. yeah, so idli, dosa, and all that the stuff. The staple was. Uh, Curd rice, yogurt rice, yeah. yogurt rice with pickle, mm-hmm. and then uh, chicken. So do you make your own yogurt rice? That I can do. I mean, that's not too hard. That's <laughs> steam the rice and then put the yogurt and then I don't have pickles, so I just put hot sauce. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> such a weird concept, plain yogurt and hot sauce and rice. Like, yeah. that sounds but disgusting, but it's do, amazing. Do you consider that as your comfort food? Definitely. That and chicken wings. Mm. Oh, chicken wings is comfort food. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Because yeah. I was born in Buffalo and that's where they were originated. Yeah. So I grew up on Indian food and chicken wings, so. The work that Jonathan does today relates a lot to food and dignity. Although Jonathan had started working on food circles earlier, his current work with Give Safe was inspired by the work of change makers in India. So, you know, I have an interesting relationship with food. I treat it very economically, or uti- I have like this utilitarian view where I have a cousin who loves nothing more than to go to a restaurant and with friends and to spend fifty to hundred dollars. And on like a nice steak and a nice mm-hmm. meal, and I'm for me, it's like if I if I go to Burger King instead and spend four dollars, then in three hours all the food is it turns into the same thing. <laughs> it all ends in the same way, right? Yeah. And and then now I have ninety six dollars that I can mm-hmm. buy something that that is more lasting. So I had this utilitarian view that's slow, slowly changing, but it also came from you know my for a while my family was on food stamps and I remember times opening the fridge and there being some like nasty Indian food, some expired orange juice and then cheese. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. So I actually got sick from eating too much bad cheese as a kid and now I don't oh. eat cheese at all. And I don't, that's one thing I don't like about American culture is how much cheese they eat and they mm-hmm. put it on everything, them and the Italians. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. So, so, you know, I, I don't do cheese anymore my my socioeconomic status changed as I grew mm-hmm. the 18 years I was at home. And when I was in college and I was spending, I, w- I had spending money. So I'd go out to eat with my friends and spend $12 on something like a turkey sandwich or a hamburger. And then, you know, I would participate in that. Obviously, it was a great thing, but I would also know, you know I, I knew how much groceries that $12 could buy for a family formerly like my own. And then I thought, you know, ultimately we're the ones keeping these restaurants in business. Our decision to eat at one restaurant or another is extremely valuable. 
Mm-hmm. Is there a way I could leverage my consumer decision against the restaurants and turn that into some sort of, can I get the restaurants essentially to compete a little bit more for my business and turn that into some sort of impact or aid for people who couldn't afford to eat out like I, I could, or, you know, maybe you could. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like my, my thesis or my thought in college, like my senior year to start food circles, mm-hmm. uh, which was a way to, uh, yeah, exactly that. Take, um, take your, your decision to eat at one restaurant and leverage that into um, a, a meal or meals for families in the community. Uh, in, in just a real quick nutshell, the way it was a mobile app or it is a mobile app, the way it works is that uh, we'll talk to restaurants about becoming a buy one, feed one establishment. Mm-hmm. And that serves as a competitive advantage for them because they have this branding and they look good doing it. And then so they create this buy one, feed one dish that if you as the consumer choose to eat at that restaurant instead of the restaurant across the street mm-hmm. and you buy that dish, 100% of the proceeds go to a local food organization to provide for those in need. Oh, wow. Um, so so it was a competitive advantage for restaurants. It allowed consumers to use their consumer purchasing decisions for good. Mm. And then obviously uh, the end beneficiaries would, would be able to provide for, for them and their families. Yeah, GiveSafe is, is sort of a sequel to, to the work with food circles and i should say that before food circles came that documentary in india mm-hmm. that was really influential for me to um my junior year in college so 2010 2011 uh, to to go and film a movie about social change and poor change makers in india was really a precursor for me to pursue that sort of work with with food circles and then so what do you mean by poor change makers it's 10 short stories in India about people who are doing things to uh, revolutionize maybe just their own shelter or their own family or their own region, but then also, you know, their own state or their own city or their own country. So at the at the small end of the spectrum, you have a, a guy like Ashok Kumar, who we met in a, in a New Delhi slum, old Delhi slum, actually. He and his brother both were born to two loving parents that had a house in Mumbai, the mom ended up dying. The dad got sick. They got evicted from their home, and they ended up becoming slum children. The, him and his mm-hmm. brother. His brother chose the the pathway of of violence and and gangs and tried to get ahead that way. While Ashok went to school, learned English, became a tour guide, wants to own a restaurant one day. Mm-hmm. His brother ended up dying in gang violence, mm-hmm. and his and Ashok. He's living this example where his greatest aspiration is simply to buy the house that he was evicted from when his family was together. And so he's not going to change the world, right? But his attitude and his simple aspirations changed me and changed mm-hmm. the people who see the film about him, um, changed the people he's in the slum with, I believe, the people he works in that restaurant with or gives tours to. Um, so that's that's on one end of the spectrum, the micro end. And then the macro end is meeting someone like Babar Ali or Rakesh Sharma. Rakesh Sharma, that the astronaut mm-hmm. from India, he lives on the top of a tea mountain in Kunur, the hill stations near Bangalore. Oh, okay. You know, went into space, came back. I'm sure you know about it. Mm-hmm. But when he came back, he helped start an organization called Head Held High, which has pioneered this curriculum that takes 12 years of education and turns it into six to eight months. Wow. Yeah. And they, they serve this eight-month program to people in their 20s who are totally illiterate, totally unskilled. 
they're earning like 3,000, 4,000 rupees a month, which is like 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. And then in eight months, they can read, write, speak English, use a computer, these critical skills. And they go from, you know, 3,000, 4,000 to maybe 9,000 to 12,000 rupees a month. So I didn't know about this organization. Yeah, yeah. And and so the, the, the thing is, like, they're trying to actually open source their curriculum and let other organizations around the country steal Mm. their their practices and then apply it in however they want yeah wow so so all to say that this mm. work sort of influenced uh a lot of what i did with food circles and then now give safe which um you know i've had interesting experiences trying to find housing myself mm-hmm. so for the people who are actually sleeping under a bridge or who are subsisting off of um people's generosity downtown uh asking for money or whatnot uh, i wanted to provide like a way for someone walking by to know that person's story, how they got to where they are, where they're trying to go, what they feel that they need to get there. And for that uh, that person walking by to, to simply tap on their phone and contribute uh, money that can only be used on those things that they say they need. Mm. So things like uh, temporary shelter or clothing, bus fare, work boots, electrician's tools, uh, college classes, whatever it is because uh, I think that's that's one of the there are so many barriers that prevent us from showing compassion when, when we see someone in need that was Jonathan Kumar a filmmaker, an entrepreneur and a change maker as part of Roti Kapra or Makan we plan to bring to you regular book reviews this week, Professor Nalini Ayer reviews Tanuja Desai Hidiyar's Born Confused. I am so glad Dr. Nalini Ayer picked this book to review. Now I want to read it again along with my daughter. As an immigrant parent, I was always looking for books that my daughters could read that would offer them an alternative worldview than the predominantly white experiences offered by mainstream children's and young adult literature. Although we did bring back books from all our trips to India, often supplied by generous grandparents who took the girls to bookstores as part of their vacation trips, those books didn't quite fulfill their emotional needs either. Although they dutifully read Indian mythology and folk tales and some contemporary fiction set in India, those experiences were alien to them as well. They were much happier reading what all their peers were reading. Adventure stories, fantasies, dystopias, all with predominantly white characters. Thus, it was always a joy for me to find books written by South Asian American authors focused on the immigrant experience. Over the years, I have acquired books by Mitali Perkins, Kashmira Seth, Chitra Banerjee, Divakaruni, among others, for their reading pleasure. Among my favorites is Tanuja Desai Hidiyar's Born Confused. Dimple Lala, the 17-year-old protagonist with her high school friendship dramas, her difficulties with romance, her exploration of her social and cultural identity, speaks to the experiences of Indian American teens. This is not simply an add curry powder and stir for diversity novel. There is an assertion here of a distinct Indo-Americanness, a recognition that children of immigrants are forming their own cultural sensibility that is not that of their parents nor that of their non-Indian peers. Dimple, 
the protagonist, is the only child of Indian immigrants growing up in the New Jersey suburbs. While we may think of New Jersey as full of Indian immigrants, Dimple's experience in her particular corner of that state is that she is one of two Indians in her school. Here is how she describes it. I'm one of only two Indians in the whole school, the other being the above-mentioned Jimmy Thrilok Singh, who wore his ethnicity so brazenly in the form of that pupil-shrinking turban and the silver kada bangle on his wrist, I got the feeling many people had stopped noticing that I hailed originally from the same general hood. But I did my best to, to play it down. After all, the day I wore my hair in braids, everybody yelled, Hey Pocahontas! and did that ah-ba-ba-ba lip-slap at recess. You too would have gotten a perm soon after as well. Gwyn had gone on with me to get the perm. In general, she often acted as my personal stylist, which served to disguise me still further. It was she who talked me into buying the too tight, tottery pumps I was now keeling in. In fact, I'd more often been mistaken, heretically speaking, for Mexican than half Mumbaiite, a geographical personal status formerly known as half Bombayite. But much as I tried to blend in, and much as I often did with the wallpaper and the floor, if not the other kids, I still felt it sometimes, like when my mother came to open house in that salwar kameez, or when I stayed up all night trying to scrub the henna off my palms after hush-hush auntie's son's wedding because during home ec, Mrs. Plum suspected I had a skin disease and refused to partake of my cinnamon apple crumble. And eating with my hands? I wouldn't even do that at home alone and in the dark. Not only does Hidir capture Dimple's minority status, she also deftly underscores the ethnocentrism and racism that is part of her everyday life. As a girl, Dimple, like all teens her age, is acutely conscious of her looks. Again, it's not easy being brown. Here's Dimple talking to the reader about the photographs that she's taken over the years with her beloved Chika Tika camera. She describes her photographs. Everywhere, Gwyn. She was all over the photographs hanging to dry. Gwyn in A Hall, a beginner's philosophy book in focus in her hand, her partial head blurred like a spinning top. Gwyn in an American classroom, pledging to the flag with one hand and adjusting her bra strap behind her back with the other. Gwyn giving off double peace signs in a tiny teed, pleathered pose on the scintillating hood of Dylan's car. My memory filled in the early sunburn below the pseudo-punk safety pin gaseous in her white tee, the unabashed red of the pleather, the blinding azure sun of that day, and the way it had made her eyes burn like liquid metal. Looking at this black and white of a red, white, and blue moment, Gwyn appeared the very image of the American dream itself, the blonde-rooted, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Marilyn for a skinny generation. And if I was her reverse twin, the negative to her positive, that made me... The Indian nightmare? The American scream? She goes on. So not quite Indian and not quite American. Usually I felt more along the lines of alien, however legal as my Jersey birth certificates attest to. The only times I retreated to one or the other description were when my peers didn't understand me. Then I figured it was because I was too Indian, or when my family didn't get it, clearly because I was too American. And in India, sometimes I was too Indian in America, yes, but in India, I was definitely not Indian enough. For Dimple, she is neither Indian nor American. With this characteristic blend of satire, humor, and teenage philosophy, Hidya takes us through Dimple's life. 
her need for a boyfriend, her attraction to Karsh, her mother's best friend's son with whom her mother is trying to set her up, and her relationship with Kavita, her cousin from India. Kavita is a student at NYU and through her, Dimple is introduced to college life, to discussions of race and identity that occurs on that campus, and her discovery of her own assumptions about India and Indian women. She learns that Kavita is not the perfect girl that everyone thinks she is. She too carries a secret. Dimple discovers that Kavita is lesbian and is hiding that from her parents in India, and that her roommate Subs is really her lover. Dimple is also surprised by her own parents. She assumes that there will be an outburst of Bollywood proportions when Kavita's secret comes out. But her parents surprise her by being kind and supportive of Kavita. We follow Dimple through her adventures in teen life, her observations of the world she lives in, her discovery of the youth music scene in New York through Karsh and his work as a DJ. The novel takes us through Dimple's eventful summer of discovery when she discovers her sexual self, her world beyond suburban New Jersey, and navigates the difficulties in her friendship with Gwyn and figures out who she is ethnically and culturally. The novel is now about 15 years old and much has changed in the material lives of teenagers. There are no smartphones or social media apps in this world and the so the novel might seem a bit dated in that regard. But at the core, it still resonates with teens and parents alike. I learned much about teenagers and their lives from Dimple Lala and I must say it made me a more empathetic parent of teenage daughters. Dr. Nalini Iyer is a professor of English at Seattle University. She reviewed Tanuja Desai Hidir's Barn Confused. Wish you a peaceful, healthy, and prosperous 2017. We look forward to bringing you new stories and voices throughout the next year. Roti, Kapra, or Makan is produced by Studio Disha. Theme music by Mansoor Ahmed of Resonate Productions. Our podcast is brand new. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. If you have any story ideas or comments, email us at rkmpodcast at gmail.com. I am Rituja and thanks for listening to Roti, Kapra or Makan.